Last evening, the, uh, the church building was filled with the aroma of a smorgasbord of fine food prepared by the young professional group. It was an evening of delicious dining, spiced with hearty laughter and deep-seasoned with profound insights into some of life's most essential questions. All that is absolutely true. What I found was an intelligent and thoughtful group who represent the essence of this church, who are in some ways the arms and legs of Jesus in this community. And with that experience in mind, our reading is from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. <clears throat> it's one of the snapshots in the book of Acts of a man named Barnabas. So those who were scattered because of the persecution connected with, that was connected with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But some men from Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and began to speak to the Gentiles as well, preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number believed. And this news reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when Barnabas arrived, he witnessed the grace of God. And he rejoiced and he began to encourage them to remain true to the Lord. Now Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And considerable numbers were added to the Lord. And after they had been fully integrated, Jews, Sumerians, Africans, Gentiles, it was then and there that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And so this morning, I would like for us to turn once again to the book of Acts about a character that you and I have been looking for all of our lives. It's no secret that this significant character that we've always longed for would be the heart of this church or any church that he was a part. And it's our good fortune that Luke has given us a, a pretty full character sketch of this man in the book of Acts. Sermons on Barnabas are kind of a, a trope for preachers. Every preacher worth his or her salt has in their back pocket a Barnabas sermon. He's a go-to character from Scripture, and for good reason. Because the first time that Barnabas steps on stage, which is before the reading we just did, he's portrayed as a very generous man. Acts 4, verses 36 and following. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, whom the disciples called Barnabas, which means literally son of encouragement. Barnabas, the text says, owned a tract of land and he sold it, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. A piece of land he sells and gives the proceeds 
to the cause, a strong model of good. And it was this act of generosity that brought him the nickname Barnabas, son of encouragement. Have you ever known people who inspired others by their generosity? I have. I look back over life, people who watched our children, who took time, to, took their time to come to know us, uh, asking us questions, not because they wanted something, but because they cared. People from a cup of coffee to a kind word were encouragers, and you've had those same people in your lives. Sometimes it's a matter of money. It doesn't have to be a lot. You've known people whose devotion and sacrifice of small amounts encouraged you. I know of a woman, she was a widow woman. She didn't have much, hardly had anything at all, just two cents. And when she gave her money, all of her money, put it in the treasury, Jesus says, look, look at that, will you? Look at that. You remember the feeling you got around Christmas time just before? You're walking into the department store and your child, your seven-year-old takes his or her entire life savings, all $5, and plops it into that red bucket next to the guy ringing the bell before you can catch her to prohibit. But that night, as you're reflecting on her good deed, you were encouraged. Barnabas, a man who was generous and had encouraged others, he appears again in the ninth chapter after the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. You'll remember Saul as the Christian hater, the Christian killer. Saul is described as a terrorist, really. He was the Don Carleone who stood next to the execution of Stephen. It was Saul of Tarsus who hauled off women and men to be tortured and to be killed. He was Christianity's public enemy number one. And then we're told in the ninth chapter, after the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, that Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the disciples and described to them how Saul of Tarsus had seen the Lord on the road, how God had talked to Saul of Tarsus and how Saul had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus at Damascus. That was Barnabas. About the time the apostles were hiding behind the locked doors of the bathroom, hiding under the baptism, hiding in the baptistry or hiding under the church pew, Barnabas was the one who took Saul and introduced him to the apostles. Barnabas, who's practicing, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Barnabas. About the year 250, a man named Decius became emperor of Rome. And he instilled what was called universal sacrifices to the pagan gods, of which, of which the Christians, some Christians, refused to participate. Some gave in, but most stood firm. And because of their firm standing, not giving in to making sacrifice to the pagan gods, were persecuted and some died for their faith. Then the persecution passed like a storm. And then... Some who had denied their faith began to come back. And those who came back were called the lapsed. You can imagine. My husband died for his faith. And you? Imagine the bitterness. Imagine the resentment. And this became one of the early Christian controversies. What to do with the lapsed. 
And the church overall decided that they would practice forgiveness, practice forgiveness over fear, forgiveness over bitterness, forgiveness over resentment. And forgiveness became the hallmark of Christianity. Barnabas, acting like Barnabas. He'll appear again, yet again. The story goes like this. John Mark is one of the characters in the book of Acts. His mother, we don't know her name, but John Mark's mother housed a gathering of the church in her home. Now, John Mark went off with Paul and Barnabas on the church's first missionary trip. And then something unfortunate happened. We don't know exactly what, but John Mark quit, or he gave up, he backed down, he went home, according to chapter 13 and verse 13. Paul would later say that John Mark had deserted the team. That's his word. And later, when the occasion arose to re-enlist, John Mark volunteered for the next missionary trip. And Paul said, absolutely not. That old line, you've heard it before, burned once, shame on you, burned twice, shame on me. I'm not going to let that happen, Paul. But guess who stood up for John Mark? Guess who was, quote, desirous of taking John Mark along, according to chapter 15? Yeah, Barnabas, who believed in people. Despite Paul's objections, Barnabas nurtured John Mark, who came, history claims, to be the one who authored the first book in the New Testament to make, uh, first gospel in the New Testament to make it into the canon. The author of the Gospel of Mark. That wouldn't have happened without Barnabas. Barnabas believed in people. He was the son of encouragement. He was supporting. He was forgiving. He was generous. And that's how the sermon on Barnabas typically goes. That's the grist for the sermon on Barnabas, whom we've all been looking for, whom we've wanted to be at our side, the generous, forgiving, supportive Barnabas. And that sermon then typically ends with a moral imperative, you must, you should, you ought to be like Barnabas. But there's one more snapshot that I would like to describe that Luke takes that's really important. It's the passage that we read, the story of Barnabas going to Antioch, and a little background might be helpful. In the ancient world, I'm talking about the first century, there were three great cities in the known world. There was Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. And only Rome and Alexandria surpassed Antioch. Antioch was a cosmopolitan city. It was a byword for luxurious immorality, famous for chariot racing, famous for kind of a deliberate pursuit of pleasure that went on night and day, a house of betting and gambling and nightclubs of a sort, famous for the worship of Daphne, whose temple stood five miles outside of town. And the legend, the myth that that temple was built on was that Daphne was a mortal maid whom Apollo, the god, fell in love with. And Apollo comes down to earth and chases Daphne, who then turns herself to save herself into a, a laurel bush. That's the myth. The religion was built on that myth. And so at the big temple in Antioch, there were 
priestesses who were temple prostitutes who, with the parishioners, would reenact that myth. That was the worship in Antioch. It was a city known for its luxurious, lustful living. That's the city to which Barnabas is sent in this context. In the first seven chapters of Acts, only Jews are converted. In chapter 8, we're introduced to Sumerians. In chapter 8, we're we're introduced to Ethiopians. In chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is converted. And now, beginning in chapter 10, the door opens to the Gentiles. And the first Gentile in is a man named Cornelius, a safe, can I say that? A safe Gentile. We know he's described as a person who was generous with his money. He prayed. Everybody liked Cornelius. People said, Cornelius, wouldn't he make a great Christian? Oh, yeah. Cornelius already has the morals of of Christianity. That's fine. But now in chapter 11, we have mass conversions of a whole bunch of Gentiles from Antioch. Antioch. We don't even know these people. Now, who are the evangelists that converted them? Text says some men from Cyprus and Cyrene. What's their names? Doesn't say. Just says some men from Cyprus and Cyrene. And where are these Gentiles living again? Antioch. Oh my. Let me uh, let me let, let let me imagine now that you and me were sitting around the table of apostles. We're apostles, and we get this news. And I say. <clears throat> I would like to have a word uh, for decency, caution, prudence. I've got some concerns over the converts in Antioch. For example, number one, will they be able to hold to the moral principles of Christianity? And number two, were they really converted? You know? By the way, those are the questions that are raised in Acts chapter 15. In Jerusalem where the apostles live, those who walked with Jesus. They could have sent anybody. They could have sent somebody rigid and narrow, somebody who made sure they were abiding by the rules and the regulations. Sergeant Acuff, Lieutenant Morrill, General Law, could have sent one of them to Antioch to lay down the law. But they send the man who has the biggest heart in all the church. They send the generous, forgiving supportive Barnabas. Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, telling them the good news about the Lord. And the Lord's hand was with them, and great number of people turned to the Lord and believed. And news reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, the text says, and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and he encouraged them. He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Now he was a good man, Barnabas was, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So Barnabas arrives in Antioch. And what do you think he saw? text says he saw evidence of God's grace. Of course it was there. Luke says the hand of the Lord was with the evangelists in verse 21. But not everybody is trained to see the good. Encouragers are. Some are trained to see the problems, the half-empty cup, 
the dangers, the obstacles. And then Luke says something very unusual. Typically, when Luke's writing in the book of Acts, he says, we went here, we went there, we did this, we did that. But here, seldom does he do this. Here, he stops and does what he does in verse 24. In verse 24, he stops describing the growth and the activity in Antioch, and he says a word on Barnabas. He's told us so much in pictures. He's got a snapshot with Saul, Barnabas walking next to Saul. Saul of Tarsus. He's got a snapshot of Barnabas with his arms around John Mark. He's got a snapshot of Barnabas laying his bags of money before the apostles that he got from selling the land. And now he just sums it up. He says, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. And here now is where this sermon might be lived. You and I have spent our lives looking for Barnabas. We've been looking for people who are generous and forgiving and supporting. We want to be in the picture with Barnabas. We want Barnabas to introduce us to others. We want Barnabas to give us a second chance. We want Barnabas to give us his time and his, and his wisdom, maybe even his money. We've been looking everywhere all of our lives. It started with our parents and then our teachers and then people at church saying, if not so many, not so many were... In this, whether we use these words or not, encourage me, please. Put your arm around my shoulder, would you? Would you tell me that I'm a good worker? Would you tell me that I've done a good job? Would you say that I can do anything I've set my mind to? Would you tell me that I'm really a good person? We've been hunting for those people all of our lives. We, sit, we hope we sit next to them at Starbucks. We hope they'll, they'll call us on the cell that we'll open up an email, and there he is, Barnabas. And if we have ears to hear, and some of you do, you recognize that God's been sending them all along, these encouragers and these moments, and you've heard them, and you've lived with them, and you've listened to them, and you've stored them in your heart, and it feeds you. But then comes the biggest surprise of all. It occurs to us sometimes, sometime in our life, it dawns on us at some point that God has called us to be Barnabas. We're the teacher. We're the coach. We're the friend. We're now the grandparent. Something's happened. You've been promoted at work. You recognize this is who I am. And that's when we discover right away what we never knew before, but we know it now, and that is how hard it is to be Barnabas. Because all that Barnabas was hearing, he's a loser. She has a track record. They'll just clog up the program. People counsel us like they counseled Barnabas. Let him go. Well, let's just wait and see if he brings forth fruit um, of repentance. Time will tell. Let somebody else do it. You're too busy. It's not easy to swim upstream when the current is so strong to forgive a sinner, to support a loser, to be generous with your time when you only have so much when the current is flowing the other way. How do you do it? How do you do it? Luke gives us a clue at the end. To see the cup half full, to encourage faithfulness, to see evidence of the grace of God. Barnabas has been allowing God to work in him his entire life. As he says at the close, Barnabas was a good man, 
full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. It's time to close, I know, I can tell by the sound. But I do want to say this as we end. There's a huge difference between optimism and hope and faith, the kind of hope and faith we find in Barnabas. Optimism is an elusive kind of quality. When I first became a Christian, I was taught, the youth, a youth group I attended, we were taught a, an optimist song. It went like this, grin again, gang, get gung-ho about gladness, smile sweetly, sister, while you send Satan sadly away. Hey, hey, buck up, brother Bill, because a batch of bitter boys will him a batch of better boys behind a big, big smile. Grin again, gang, get gung-ho about gladness. And then you sing it again, faster and again, and faster and faster and faster, until it becomes a tongue twister. And it's, essence, it's, it's saying, fake it till you make it. Optimism, optimism. Hope and faith are something radically different. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen as we trust God and as we have faith in people. The underlying issue for Barnabas is that this was a man who was becoming more and more like Jesus of Nazareth. The man had empathy. He could listen. He could ask. He could imagine what would it be like to be Saul of Tarsus right now? What would it be like to be John Mark right now? What would it be like to be, moved, to be moving out of the paganism of Antioch? Remember how you felt when you said, encourage me, please. What's it like to be him? What's it like to be her? What's it like to be them? Where do we find the evidences of the hand of God? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves all the children in the world.